Good morning, everybody. It's great to be together. I think a lot of people have decided to take a late holiday this year. I'm thinking of who's not here. It's a lot of couples who are actually away. Some of them overseas, some of them at family events. So I don't think we've um, offended too many people. I think it's just the way it is. So let's just be still and quiet, listening for the God who calls our name. And then let us listen for God speaking unto us in some words from the second letter to a young man called Timothy. Excuse me. God, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and impurity. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. God is good. God is truth. God is beauty. We praise God. Beautiful God, on this autumn morning, the splendour of creation draws us to wonder and rejoicing. The varied, rich colours of the dying leaves falling from the trees. The chill morning air and the dew-wet grass in parks and gardens. The early morning mist shrouding the buildings. The softer glow of the sun as the seasons turn and the light reduces. Beautiful God, on this autumn morning, we rejoice that every human being is made in your image and likeness. That every human being is therefore beautiful. This is too much for us to understand, as our own definitions of beauty and righteousness blind us to the truth. Forgive us our self-righteousness. Forgive us our assumptions that we fully know and understand the measure of your love and acceptance. Show each of us where deep down inside we are ugly and make us new. God of truth, as we meet in Christ's name, Help us to listen carefully for your voice. Deliver us from the arrogance that thinks we know all the truth. Deliver us from the laziness that is content with a partial or a misunderstood truth. By your Holy Spirit, awaken each and every one of us to new and deeper understandings of the truth that is found in you. 
Scripture tells us no one is good but God. It also tells us that God is love and that God's grace and mercy know no bounds. Gracious, merciful, loving God, we come to you as we are, in all the muddle of our understanding and misunderstanding, our dogma, our bewilderment, our questioning, knowing that always we are loved and accepted by you. Please accept our praise and our prayers, however inadequate they may be. Please refresh and renew us for the service of Christ. Please lead us onward into new and ever more mature understandings of what it means to be Christ's disciples. For in his name we pray. We listen for the word of God from uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 3. The Lord appears to Samuel. In those days, when the boy Samuel was serving the Lord under the direction of Eli, there were very few messages from the Lord, and visions from him were quite rare. One night, Eli, who was now almost blind, was sleeping in his own room, Samuel was sleeping in the sanctuary, where the sacred covenant box was. Before dawn, while the lamp was still burning, the Lord called Samuel. He answered, Yes, sir, and ran to Eli and said, You called me, and here I am. But Eli answered, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Samuel went back to bed. The Lord called Samuel again. The boy did not know that it was the Lord, because the Lord had never spoken to him before. So he got up, went to Eli, and said, You called me, and here I am. But Eli answered, My son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. The Lord called Samuel a third time. He got up, went to Eli, and said, You called me, and here I am. Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to him, Go back to bed, and if he calls you again, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. The Lord came and stood there, and called as he had before, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, Speak, your servant is listening. The Lord said to him, Someday I am going to do something to the people of Israel that is so terrible that everyone who hears about it will be stunned. On that day, I will carry out all my threats against Eli's family from beginning to end. I have already told him that I am going to punish his family forever because his sons have spoken evil things against me. Eli knew they were doing this, but he did not stop them. So I solemnly declare to the family of Eli that no sacrifice or offering 
will ever be able to remove the consequences of this terrible sin. Samuel stayed in bed until morning. Then he got up and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli about the vision. Eli called him, Samuel, my boy. Yes, sir, answered Samuel. What did the Lord tell you? Eli asked. Don't keep anything from me. God will punish you severely if you don't tell me everything he said. So Samuel told him everything. He did not keep anything back. Eli said, He is the Lord. He will do whatever seems best to him. And then our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 2. The boy Jesus in the temple. Every year the parents of Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they went to the festival as usual. When the festival was over, they started back home. But the boy Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. His parents did not know this. They thought that he was with the group. So they travelled a whole day and then started looking for him (coughs) among their relatives and friends. They did not find him, so they went back to Jerusalem looking for him. On the third day, they found him in the temple, sitting with the Jewish teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his intelligent answers. His parents were astonished when they saw him, and his mother said to him, My son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been terribly worried trying to find you. He answered them, Why do you have to look for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand his answer. So Jesus went back with them to Nazareth, where he was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus grew both in body and in wisdom, gaining favor with God and people. Now I'm going to start off today with a question, and this is a question that I want you to answer. Okay? Normally I ask you rhetorical questions or private questions, but I would like a little bit of input. So the question is this, quite simply, when does a person become an adult? I'd like some thoughts in response to that one. When does a person become an adult? When they leave home. Thank you, David. When they leave home. Is that when a person becomes an adult? When they can do some things legally. When they can do some things legally. Okay, thank you, Sheila. Got some interested, like, puzzled faces. (laughs) It sounds like a simple question, but actually it is anything but a simple question. The way we answer that question depends which nation we live in and grow up in and which cultures we are a part of. Once we start delving into the legal issues, we uncover a whole can of worms. If we look at different nations, and I did this week, the laws vary an awful lot. And some of them change from year to year. 
But typically, in most nations in the West, or the white part of the world anyway, it would be legal for somebody to marry whilst they were still at school, and therefore, technically, in most nations, still a child. In some cases, they would need consent from their parents. In other cases, from the state. And there was one nation, and forgive me, I forget which one it was, but you could marry at 18, because you wanted to, at 16 with your parents' consent, and at 14 if you could get a judge to approve it. Incredibly complicated way of trying to work out what is an adult. Scotland, to the best of my understanding, and I could have this wrong, is unusual. In As far as I can understand, it has a common age at 16 for sexual consent, marriage, school leaving and voting. If I've got that wrong, somebody will correct me. But despite that, in common with the rest of the UK, it has an earliest permission aid for driving a car at 17, 18 for purchasing alcohol, tobacco or knives, and of course there is a film certification which is all over the place, 12s, 15s and 18s. It would, in the whole of the UK, be illegal for a 17-year-old married father to buy a knife to cut a loaf or for his 16-year-old wife to go to watch certain films. So if we want the law to help us define adulthood, I think we're on a hiding to nothing. But I want to stay with UK law for a little while to help us to realise just how complicated all this is and how much our shaping, our, our thinking is shaped by the society of which we are a part. It was in the 1880s that compulsory free education was introduced in Britain. I wonder if anybody knows what the school leaving age was in the 1880s. It was 10. I think somebody over here said 10. At the age of 10, you would leave school and go to work. Within just over a decade, by 1893, that was increased twice to 11 and then to 13. In 1918, at the end of World War I, it went up to 14. In the 1940s, it went up to 15. In the 1960s, and I can just remember this because I was just about starting school at the time, it went up to 16. And for the UK, with the exception of Scotland, it has just gone up to 18. So a century ago, you were considered old enough to go out and work at 10. And now you are old enough to be married and have children, but you still are not old enough to leave school. So something has changed in our understanding Or what about marriage, as an example? Anybody know when marriage registration became a legal requirement in the UK? Roughly. Which century? Well, it was 1837, so that's 19th century. And do you know what the marriage age was, minimum, in those days? 14 for boys and 12 for girls. So we've shifted an awfully long way in our understanding of how old you are at at 12 and 14 
since then. At the, in those days, a 12-year-old girl or a 14-year-old boy was considered old enough to be married, with all that entailed. It wasn't until 1929 that the marriage age was raised to 16. Before the 1880s, there was no age of consent. People could have sex at any age. It was a campaign by the Salvation Army aimed at protecting girls and women from exploitation that resulted in a minimum age of consent being brought in, and that was initially 13. And over time, the age at which people are considered legally old enough to enter into relationships has gone up. But at the same time, the age at which young people reach puberty and become physically mature has gone down because we have better diet, better health, and better housing. People grow up physically much more quickly than they did a century ago. And yet, in somehow, we make them be child, children for longer. We prolong childhood so that you are still a child for most of the UK until you are 18, certainly 16 in Scotland, even though your body may be that of an adult. It seems to me small wonder that young adults today find the world a very bewildering place to be. And with the diversity across the nations and the frequent changes of legislation within the nations, it is impossible to come up with a firm definition of adulthood. Perhaps this shouldn't surprise us. In our post-enlightenment Western worldview, We've tried to make everything scientific. And we've disconnected it from the far less predictable physical and intellectual changes that suggest a transition from childhood to adulthood. It is surely an artificial distinction that in Scotland, at 15 years and 364 days old, you are a child. And at 16 years old and no days, you are an adult. It seems to be nonsensical that in Germany, a 14-year-old is judged old enough to have sex, but in Kenya, you have to be 18. Defining adulthood by calendar age is artificial and actually unhelpful. The move from childhood to adulthood is a process lasting several years And yes, it includes factors like puberty, the move from education to employment, the move from the parental home to independent living. But it also includes a move from freedom to responsibility, of being told what to do, to having to work it out for ourselves. The precise details obviously will vary from place to place. I think it's fair to say that in the UK, the process of transitioning from childhood to adulthood typically begins at around the age of 12, with the onset of bodily changes, and probably continues until around the mid-20s, when actually our thinking has caught up and we, we kind of feel that we know who we are again. I have to be honest, that's partly based on my experience. I didn't really feel I was grown up until I was about 25, despite being allowed to vote at 18. 
that's all fine and dandy. We've talked about education, we've talked about relationships, but what about faith? How do our understandings of adulthood affect the way we respond to young people in churches? If puberty in in girls can be as early as nine, and in boys as late as 18, if the law says education is mandatory until 16 or 18, if marriage is permitted at 16, but most people stay in full-time education until their early or mid-twenties, how is the church to respond in a way that is helpful and creative? A way that leads them to grow in faith, rather than to do it in a way that is reactive and dogmatic and sadly often drives them away. This morning we heard two biblical stories about boys on the brink of adulthood. We're not told how old Samuel is at this time of this account, but tradition suggests he was about 12 years old. And the Gospel of Luke quite clearly tells us that Jesus was 12. When we come to these stories, we need to keep in mind that in the culture and practice of that day, 12 was the age of maturity, the age of transition to adulthood. A male Jew would undergo his bar mitzvah, a ceremony where he became a son of the covenant, a practice that continues to this day. And that would happen at around about the age of 12. If you look at other faiths and other cultures, you will find similar rights for boys as they transition from boyhood to manhood. Various tasks that must be undertaken, various rights that they go through. And in some places, there are some for girls as well. For those of us who are older than about 40 we will probably recall a time when it was fashionable for churches to confirm or baptise young people at or around the age of 12, whether or not they were ready to make such a commitment. So what we have to do when we come to these stories is not get too preoccupied with the fact that Samuel and Jesus were around about 12 years old, but actually to think about the stage they were at in their lives. It is a glimpse of two young men on the brink of adulthood. Unfortunately, when I tried to find a Bible story about a girl of the same age, I could only find one. Anybody know who that would have been? It was Jairus' daughter, who was somewhat dead. So I'm stuck with two boys as our exemplars of young people on the brink of adulthood. In each of the stories, there's a long period of biblical silence about the childhood of these boys. We heard a lot about them as babies. The birth of Samuel, the birth of Jesus, they they are both something we hear a lot about. And then it all goes very quiet for 12 years. We know that Samuel grew up in the temple where he was cared for by a priest called Eli who was loyal and orthodox in everything he believed. And yet his own sons had not been nurtured in the way of God. In contrast, Jesus, many centuries later, lived in a broadly secular context. His family lived in the northern town of Nazareth, where Jesus would have been educated at the local synagogue school. 
He would have seen and heard people of other cultures and of other faiths who travelled along the busy roads between Jerusalem and the north, and people who travelled from other parts of the Roman Empire to do business. Whilst Luke tells us that every year the family went to the temple for Passover, which suggests they were devout, we don't know anything about their life or their religious practice. So we know nothing about Jesus as a boy. We know nothing about Samuel as a boy. What we do know is they lived under the care of responsible adults. Samuel with his foster father, Eli, and Jesus with Mary and Joseph, and in time, younger brothers and sisters. They accepted the discipline of their parents. They were taught what the law demanded, and went dutifully about the rites and rituals of faith. When we meet them in these stories, it's all about to change. Their previous unquestioning obedience to these adults is about to be displaced permanently. Because part of the transition into adulthood, into maturity, is moving from just benign acquiescence to a sense of ownership, from simply doing as one is told to understanding and accepting or rejecting a viewpoint. Samuel's experience of God calling his name is incredibly dramatic, but it's completely outside his experience or that of anybody who knows him. We're told in scripture, visions and words from God were very rare. It's no wonder that Samuel, when he heard this voice, thought it was Eli. And so he went off to see Eli. I kind of feel a bit sorry for Eli. You know, he's nicely sound asleep and this kid comes running in and says, you call me. Go out of bed. Been woken up from his sleep. It takes three times for Eli to realise that there is something going on here. And maybe, yes, actually this must be that God is speaking to Samuel. And what a message Samuel received. He was a young man, and until that point he just accepted life as it was. And now he found himself called to challenge people who were older and probably, in his view, wiser than himself. Blind obedience wasn't enough. He had to have a relationship with God that was open to being surprised and challenged that would lead him into many countercultural directions. Remember, he anointed David, the young son, to be king. That was something very strange to do. He would be led to challenge powerful men about their lifestyles. All that would be way off into the future. But Samuel's transition into adulthood began in earnest with the discovery that he had to work out, with God's help, what it meant for him to live faithfully, not just accept the passed-on ideas of an earlier generation. Samuel made his own mistakes. Let's not pretend otherwise. But here, on the brink of adulthood, he began to think seriously and to understand more deeply what it meant to live faithfully as a servant of God.
often over the years I've been told the story about the teenage Jesus in the temple and I've told it to other people as well. He, with the assurance of youth, stayed where he was whilst his family set off home with their friends. And we have to be very careful not to misread this story and paint it as something it isn't. It's a story of a young man on the transition from boyhood to adulthood. A young man who ignores the expectations and probably instructions of his parents to further his own interests. It's a story that correctly heard should resonate with the young people and teenagers of our time. Perhaps especially with those who come to Glasgow for left home for the first time in order to study. There are some outdated, unhelpful and frankly inadequate understandings of this story as effectively Jesus sitting in the temple courts with all the people at his feet, marvelling at his teaching. That's not what it says. What we're told is that Jesus was talking to the adults in the temple. He was a young man who spent most of his life in a provincial town called Nazareth. And now, for the first time, he can go and talk to these learned men at the heart of Jewish life, the men who work in the temple. It's possible that the rabbi back home, like me, was often quite ham-fisted in his attempts. But surely these people in the temple, they would know this would be the chance to find out. Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus listened to what was being said and he asked questions. He's not testing them. That's not what it says. It's not he's checking out their orthodoxy. Presumably, he's trying to dig deeper into what they're saying. And Tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. Remember, Jesus, for all his divinity, was fully human. He had had accepted the limitations of being a 12-year-old in first-century Palestine. It seems that the answers Jesus gave showed that he was no ordinary young man. And I have a feeling he was having a brilliant time at the temple, asking his questions, listening to answers, having really interesting conversations. And just imagine how he felt when he looked over his shoulder and there are Mary and Joseph who are looking more than a little bit angry. What do you think you're doing? We've been worried about you. What? Classic parent reaction to children. A mixture of relief that he's safe and anger that he wasn't doing what they expected and going home with them. I think the truth is that Jesus has started to grow up here. And simply obeying Mary and Joseph isn't going to work for him. He's begun to use the intellect that God had given him. And he would know the scriptures well enough to know that here the law says this, and there the law says that, and how do I hold those two together? He would know that people would pick this line and make a lot of it, and completely ignore a whole pile of other stuff. He knew that no human person could fully understand the whole of of Scripture to be really sure what God had said. And he knew, because he'd grown up in Nazareth, that culture affected understanding. 
He was a healthy young man with an inquiring mind, fully human and fully divine granted, but seeking to understand the faith in which he'd been nurtured. And he was beginning to discover that being true to God could bring him into conflict with his family and with other people who were respected in the synagogue or even the temple. Being true to who he was, being the authentic son of God, fully human and fully divine, was not going to be easy. And yet, for all this, he went home with Mary and Joseph and lived a quiet, hidden life until he was in his 30s. It's really telling, I think, that both Samuel and Jesus disappear out of the story for several years after this transition experience. We don't know what happens between when they were around about 12 and when they were in their 30s. The transition is quiet and often hidden, I suspect. An 18th birthday party does not an adult make. It takes many, many years to grow up. Many, many years to come to maturity, which we will pick up on again next week. And growing into adulthood is risky. For young people who come to Glasgow, or indeed anywhere, finding a faith community in which the challenges are recognised and affirmed is essential. If young people are not to be infantilised, keeping them as spiritual babies, unable to handle complex ideas and confusing experiences, then we have to give them the freedom to make mistakes, to explore, to ask their questions. And for those of us in this church who are adults, the challenge is to make it a safe enough place as we can for all children and young people to do what Jesus did, to ask questions, to explore a range of answers, to seek to understand what it is their faith is about. Because if all we do is teach them rote formula and fixed answers, the truth is, all too easily, when life storms come along, that faith will fail. We have a number of young adults with us this morning. Some are new to Glasgow, some have been with us a while. Some of you will be thinking, where do I go to find a church where I can live and grow as a disciple of Jesus? I want to share with you what was said to me when I started out to study theology when I was a lot older. The faith that you have, that you've brought with you, the understanding you have of what it means to be an authentic Christian is very, very precious. But it is also vulnerable and fragile and incomplete. And if you imagine it's like holding in your hand some very precious but very easily crushed objects, then you have choices to make. You can hold on to them really tightly so that nobody can take them off you, nobody can alter them, but you might crush them and break them. So that actually when you open your hand, all that's left is ugly, broken pieces. Or you can choose the more risky path, which is to hold them in an open hand. That's risky because you could drop something. 
or you can lose something. But it also enables you to receive new things to add, new precious things of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the question, I think, for all of us, whatever age we are. Are we clinging on so tightly that we dry up and destroy what we have, or are we open to receive new things? Because discipleship is a whole life process. We never get it sorted. We never fully arrive. There's always more for us to learn and discover. If you are a student new to Glasgow, then this is a church that will do its best to be there for you wherever you are on that journey of faith, and whatever your hard-won views are on faith and practice. And they won't all be the same. At the start of a new academic year, as we welcome new young adults to our community and continue to walk with those who've returned to our community, we pray that we may all grow into a deeper, more honest understanding of what it means to live as followers of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And Eli said to Samuel, If someone calls once more, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. In our prayers for others, let us also listen for God. Let us pray. And first in the silence, let's reflect on the journey of our own life to this point. Some of us at the stage of our transition to adulthood, others well along the lifelong journey to a more complete adulthood. What do we think? when we hear again the stories as we have heard this morning of the childhood experiences of Samuel and Jesus and how these shaped their adult lives. Adulthood brings opportunity and the thought that anything might be possible And so we pray for all students as they begin or return to their studies at universities and colleges in the coming weeks. May they be supported and encouraged throughout this important time in their lives and may we in this congregation play our part in that support and encouragement. Adulthood also brings new responsibilities and an increasing experience of the complexity and challenges of life. And so we pray for all those who are ill in body or mind and for those who treat them. For those who are in financial difficulty and for those who are advising them. For those who are experiencing difficulties in relationships 
and those who are counselling them. For those who are recently bereaved and those who are supporting them. This morning we pray for those who have been killed in the mine accident in Swansea Valley in Wales and for the families and friends who have waited anxiously for good news only to receive bad. Lord of all, in all these diverse experiences of adulthood, may they know, may we know, your loving presence. And we know that a form of adulthood can be expressed beyond the person, in communities and societies and in nations. And so we pray this morning for some of the challenges and complexities facing humankind. For South Sudan, with new hopes on the brink of adulthood. For China, for India and Brazil, sophisticated and ancient cultures undergoing bewildering transitions on roads to new expressions of national adulthood. For the continuing financial crisis throughout the world and its causes. Lord of justice and good relationships, May humankind find the path to mature adulthood for our communities, our societies, and our nations. Adulthood brings the opportunity to choose which footsteps, footsteps we want to follow and to decide what sort of footsteps we might leave for others. And so we pray for ourselves as we seek to live a life of service for others. The footsteps of God are there for us, marked by our Creator in patterns of harmony and interweaving and mystery, marked by our Redeemer, leaving hollows of love and grace, marked by our sustainer in dancings of delight which leap over our limits on our boundaries on love. Lord, when we truly pray, when we truly engage with you, we have no option but to act. And so we recommit ourselves this morning to leave our own unique footsteps in the sand. but what will be in our footsteps for those who follow. In the silence, we reflect on that question. What is in our footsteps? What is in my footsteps for those who follow?
loving God, may we, like Samuel, listen for your voice. Amen.